today, John Arno Lawson, who is a poet and children's picture book creator. He's a four times winner of the Lion and Unicorn Award for his poetry. And in the UK, we know his work more for the wordless picture books that he's created in partnership with Sydney Smith and also Chin Leng. Footpath Flowers, Over the Shop, and forthcoming A Day for Sandcastles. Could you tell us a little bit about each of those books? All three of them are autobiographical, especially the first and the most recent. And all three came to me as visual ideas. I never wanted to have words. I almost always work with words, but in each case, the idea came visually. And so I worked with that. I could see a big connection between the first book, Footpath Flowers and A Day for Sandcastles, because they feel like very personal parent-child experiences. I hadn't picked up that the second book over the shop was also an autobiographical book can tell us a little bit more about that because it's one that has been interpreted in so many different ways some people see it as an anti-racist book some people pick up on the lgbtq rainbow flag tell us a little bit more about that footpath flowers and a day for sandcastles they're based on my family over the shop was more of When I was at university, when I studied in Montreal, and there was a shop at the corner of Saint Laurent Avenue and Pine Avenue that was very run down. You could see that the second floor was all boarded up. It was a very pretty old building. And I thought, I wonder if I could offer to fix it up and they would let me live there rent free. And I thought about it a lot. And I now I would just do it. But I was young then and I was too shy. So I had the idea but didn't know what to do with it. But the idea stuck with me, something I kept thinking about and I still visit Montreal. The funny thing is in the meantime it has been renovated beautifully and you can see people are living upstairs now. So it was more autobiographical in the terms of of a fantasy of something I wanted to do and then it became the story and my eldest child is trans And so I felt strongly, too, about doing a story for little people that would bring that world closer to home. You can't get to be more of a words person than being a poet. So it feels almost counterintuitive to be writing a story that has no words in it. And the other thing that really struck me is that you work with an illustrator and some people might think what's the writer's role in this isn't the illustrator doing all of the work so I'd love to know a little bit more about what it is that you do and give to your publisher or to the illustrator so that it is this collaborative endeavor yeah that's it's a good question it made it very difficult to sell especially the first book because It was very hard to say, okay, I'm the writer, 
I have a script, basically, but nothing that I do is going to show in, in the final book. The way it worked was I had a little book that I sketched basically what I wanted on each page so that the publisher and ultimately the illustrator could look at it and see what it was I was picturing. I don't draw that well, but it was something they could look at. But then I also described what I wanted on each page. So say with Footpath Flowers, I knew I wanted very little color at the beginning and that the color would build through the book. And I knew I wanted certain settings in Toronto because it was an actual walk I was taking home. And so I knew certain settings that were very important. There was an embankment that my eldest child scrambled up to get a flower. And then the illustrator, they have a very set narrative to work with and even visual cues, but then they have a lot of freedom to interpret and to add their own piece. Say in A Day for Sandcastles, Chin included her family at the beach. I wasn't even aware of it, <laughs> but she had the freedom to do that, which is lovely. And then so it becomes very much both of our books. That's really interesting. And she's, she actually works in film, doesn't she? Yeah, she does animation as well. And it's so fortunate because she understood also than the whole sort of storyboard idea, probably better, for sure, better than I do. And she was made also, I guess, able to draw in a way that was very flowing and gave her, she's used to drawing many pictures with mm -hmm. the same characters over and over. So in a way, the process that you've described there is a little like writing a screenplay you get the bones of it but what's interesting to me is that you are putting visuals in there because you're talking about the level of color with the latest book a day out for sandcastles did you include quite a lot of visual direction as well as narrative direction for that as well i think chin had maybe more freedom even than say with footpath flowers because Footpath Flowers, I knew I wanted Toronto and certain places in Toronto. And A Day for Sandcastles, in my mind, took place on a beach in Virginia. But Chin had just been to Cape Cod with her family. I'm sure the beaches are quite similar, but there were still things that were important to me. But how she did them wasn't as said in my mind. One of the other things that seemed to me to run through all three books was about children being greater noticers or more aware of their environment than the adults. Is that an important idea for you? Yeah, I think until I had children, I hadn't really spent much time with children. And what I noticed was that I was noticing <laughs> the world... <laughs> in a completely different way, through their eyes, also through their use of language. It completely changed everything I was doing because I was seeing everything new through, through them. You know, A Day for Sandcastles was really because I wanted them in real life to not build their sandcastle on the edge of the waves. I wanted them to build it back safely, back from the water, and they would build this perfect thing I couldn't understand why were they doing it right in this place where the waves kept hitting it. But it's that kind of thing. And that's symbolic. That's actually more like real life where you're 
constantly trying to rebuild and you don't know what the day is going to bring. And so it has been that sort of thing as a parent. Now my youngest is 13. I don't know what I'm going to do for ideas. I'm going to have to maybe start writing for adults. I don't know. Are you still writing poetry alongside the wordless books? Yeah, just not as as much as I used to. I do have a collection now that I'll try to do something with, but it took almost 10 years. Whereas you've found then something new that is working for you. At the Bologna Children's Book Fair back in March, they had an exhibition called the Silent Book Exhibition, which is basically about the promotion of new wordless books. All terms are imperfect, aren't they? But wordless books do have words in it. For one thing, if nothing else, they have a title. And the title, to some extent, tells you how to read the book. It would be very different if you had no title at all. I'm thinking about Above the Shop. Of course, it's got the name of the shop and that name changes through the story. So it's not completely wordless. So silent books is this term that has been found to try and get closer to a description of the form. As I've been reading them, I don't find them silent. And I want her to ask you whether you hear sound when you're writing them and when you're reading them? That's an interesting question. It's a fascinating thing too what you're saying about the shop sign because that was Chin's edition and I was not sure about having that because I felt like it did introduce a word but I was so happy she did. There's a little kid I know who who loves the book and she calls them the grandparent Lowell. So for although there's just that one word, she hangs on that word and it's very useful for her. And it has some significance for Chin. But in terms of whether I hear sound, footpath flowers in real life, my child was singing on the way home. So there's sound to the memory. But reading the books, they're kind they are silent in my head like day for sandcastles you can see the wind in the kids hair is hair and that sort of thing but for me they are silent in an audio way and yet there's a bit for instance where the father comes and points back up the beach I don't know if at that point he's telling them to come and have lunch or why not build the sandcastle further back from my perspective you hear some words at that point it's not quite silent for me. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Because you're right, once you have a title, that in itself, just a couple of words, tells you something about how to read it. And actually, that just reminded me, with Footpath Flowers, there were many different editions in different languages. So the title changed a little bit, even within English, from mm. Sidewalk Flowers to Footpath Flowers. But I was showing, there's a local store owned by a Chinese family. And I was sent a Chinese edition of the book and I brought it to them because I thought they'd find it interesting. And the woman (laughs) looked at the title and she said, who chose the title? Like she looked shocked. And I said, oh, it's just sidewalk flowers. She said, it actually says flowers of the street, which where (laughs) I come from means sex worker. So (laughs) that might've been a regional use, but she really couldn't believe that that was the title of the book. And it would change how you read it, of course. 
So should we just think a little bit more about A Day for Sandcastle? You've told us a little bit about the story behind it. You've also explained a little bit about the script you give to Chin. What else did you want to convey to her with this story? Was it as specific as each of the narrative elements? For instance, that the castle is destroyed a number of different times. I love the one where the baby starts to walk through and everybody's saying, no, don't do it. They've made this gorgeous creation with all of the turrets and everything. Were you that specific to the different things that were going to put this castle in jeopardy? (laughs) Yeah, so I would put in the different scenarios of the things that would happen, which I think were mostly from life. You know, because I like the idea of also, let's say the baby runs through the castle And it looks like a setback, but then maybe something about the baby's footprints actually ends up being useful. So I liked that. I wanted to convey that as well, that the things that happen on the beach or the things that the waves are throwing up are things that can end up being incorporated. Yeah. And they go off and they find lots of uh, beautiful things to decorate their castle with. I also love the way that Chin has shown those time sequences which probably come from animation but showing the that time is passing really subtly uh, as that castle gets closer and closer to the parents sitting in the chair I thought that was very beautifully done were there any surprises for you when the work came back to you or anything that you wanted to have a dialogue or and work on a little bit more no we were very lucky Chin produces so much beautiful material. So I think maybe the first time it was even more a question of how not to keep everything, (laughs) how to hone it down, because she had so many great ideas. There were no bad surprises at all. There wasn't anything where I felt like we have to talk about it. And then I loved how maybe the most surprising thing was how beautiful the end papers like how Jin closes out the day like it gives you the sense of this hot beach day but then that beautiful perfect ending where everything darkens and the bus you see the bus on the embankment and and then I think the very final spread is the castle on the deserted beach in the twilight and that just evokes in well in me as a reader I'm sure other people as well what happens in that castle when there's no longer any people there? You know, not necessarily thinking about fantasy, but just that somehow it's magical because it's still there and anything could be happening in this castle. We won't know because we've left the beach and it's still there. That's magic. Yeah. Yeah. And in some way it's symbolic to of making a book. Like it's, you've created it and now it's done. And, You don't know what's going to happen with it, who's going to read it, what the fate of the story will be. Mm. So your children have inspired these wordless books in one way or another. Obviously, they're older now than the children in the books themselves. But how have they responded to the stories? I think they get a kick out of it. It's like little pieces of their lives. Day for Sandcastles was actually written way back when, around the time it happened. So it's quite long ago for them. But 
I think they enjoy seeing their these little pieces of their lives living on in in a different way. They don't seem to feel intruded upon. And I expect it generates quite a lot of memory and conversation and thinking together about those experiences, I suppose. I know that's a sort of obvious thing to say, but in my head, I suppose I'm reaching for the idea that, again, the book isn't ever silent the minute you have somebody reading it. Uh, that's This was so true, too, in terms of presenting the books, because I never gave it a thought when I first wrote a, a silent book. How am I going to use it? I was used to doing these workshops, presentations that were all word-based. And then when I realized I'm going to have to go out and do something like this, I didn't know what to expect or what to do. But it was much easier. And as you say, it's actually then very word-based. You know, what you end up doing with kids with this, even telling them this is where it comes from in my life, but what do you see happening here? It's actually fantastic for verbal, I don't know what you would call it, verbal literacy or... It's funny, I, there was another book I did that was supposed to be wordless called Over the Rooftops, Under the Moon. And Claudia Bedrick, the publisher, very late in the process, said she decided she wanted it to have words. And we'd been working on it for so long. I felt very resistant to it. But I also felt like we've got to just get this done. <laughs> and if she wants words, then let's... Well, give it a try anyway and see. And it was fascinating because I then wrote words. I had to pretend I had never seen it before. There were Nahid Kazimi's pictures. And I thought, I'm just going to pretend I've never seen this and I'm going to write words based on what I'm seeing instead of what I was originally writing about. And it came out, the new words came out really well. And Nahid said, oh, if I'd known those were going to be the words, I would have done completely different pictures. (laughs) It was like a telephone game. And so it was, in the end, it worked. I think there are a few things maybe I would do differently with that one. I think Nahid probably felt the same way. That's really fascinating. I wonder what you meant by would have done them differently. I know Nahid also produces a lot of materials. Yeah, I don't know. The process, that's the funny thing. It could have gone on and on. She could have done another set of pictures and I would have said, oh, those are the words I would have put for those pictures. But I suppose that also leads to another point, and that is that most wordless or silent books, whatever we end up calling them, they are created by one mind. Yeah, it's a very... You know, I really didn't know what to anticipate when this all started. Sheila Berry, who was our editor at Groundwood, was the one who came up with the... She said, you can't draw it, you can't draw it. I would have loved to do the art myself, but she saved me from myself. Although, ultimately, I would still love to to illustrate my own work. Maybe that's next. (laughs) Maybe in 10 years. I'll have to keep working. (laughs) And I just thank you so much for joining me in the reading corner and giving me a bit more of an insight into how the wordless book works from the writer's perspective. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much. 
So nice to talk with you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Walker Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.